everybody. We are Creep It Real. I'm Ashley. And I'm Bianca. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Thank y'all so much for sharing us with your family and friends. Thank you for the constant support. And we just want to let you know that we love you. Again, short and sweet. Contrary to what you may believe from listening to the beginning of this podcast, we are not an NPR show. So <laughs> let us let us carry on with a story that we're telling you today of Jody Who's in Truth. So Jody was born on June 5th, 1968, and she was raised in the small city of Long Prairie, Minnesota, and was the youngest daughter of Maurice and Imogene Who's in Truth. Jody had two sisters. Jill, who was five years older than her, and Joanne, who was 18 years older. Good grief, dude. Yeah, there's a there's a big age gap there. Mm-hmm. And at 13 or 14, she had a very profound loss in her life. Her father, Maurice, lost his battle with colon cancer. It was a it was a really rough summer for her as far as everything that I was reading about that loss, and it kind of comes into play a little bit in the later part of her very short life. While she was in high school, however, she had a lot of extracurricular activities. I was reading that one of the things that she did was marching band, which I definitely understand the marching band aspect of things. (laughs) But she excelled at golf, which was something that her dad had a great love for. And in 1985, she ranked as one of the top five golfers in the state of Minnesota and later led the Long Prairie High School Class A golf team to win the state championships in her senior year. After high school, she went to college at St. Cloud State University in St. Cloud, Minnesota, and studied mass communications and speech communication. She graduated with a bachelor's degree in 1990. Her close friends and family described her as charming, ambitious, that she lit up a room, and highly regarded the bonds that she shared with them. Her sister described her as being rather naive and trusting to a fault. So she was described as personable and, and bubbly, like most like most cases that we see. Yeah. Uh, It was said she hated confrontation and she was too quick to take others for their word, which, I mean, I think every, almost every young person can probably relate to that. Yes. Her friends and family describe her as being strong-willed, innocent, sometimes to her detriment, uh, charming, and a hard worker. They obviously think very highly of her and they loved her dearly, so they're, what they remember, of course, is going to be... Totally positive. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, um, co-workers at KILT say she was a hard worker. She was always willing to learn. She had a genuine interest in her Iowa community, and she often showed genuine warmth and kindness to people that others may not. In contrast, others say that everyone at KILT hated her, that she tried to flirt her way out of hard work, that she was a gold digger, she had a tense relationship with other females at the station, that she flaunted her sexuality, used hard drugs in public, and just wanted to get her pretty face out on television. Obviously, as is nearly always the case, the truth lies somewhere in the gray area. Jody seemed to be ambitious, that much I think is undeniable. In being ambitious, women tend to be read as bitches or crazy. I think we could find about a bajillion instances on Reddit where, yep. <laughs> where you know, some some woman displaying characteristics that would be seen as positive attributes in a man are interpreted as being negative and you know less than less than glowing reviews are said about them. So, I think that's kind of the, what's going on in this situation because she was awfully, you know into she was very she was super ambitious Mm -hmm. most of her journal entries 
and we'll go into that later, are about how she wants to move up and get to the next place and get to the next place. Yeah. But she had eventually wanted to come be up in the Twin Cities Mm -hmm. from Iowa and everything, which is like the, this is, this is like the big place to, I guess, be a news anchor if you're in the Midwest. Yeah. Actually, in her journal, which we'll talk about later, but you're saying she was talking about her ambition and it was a lot of a positive talk, you know, like, I am going to do this. I yes. am going to. And what do you know? People online were ripping her apart about it, saying she was just crazed about her, her career and that's probably what killed her. You know, it's just, it's funny because it's, that's something that a man is like all the time. Nobody and, cares. And the other thing is, do you know how many people have coming from real, the real estate? world mm-hmm. say i am going to do this and it's a positive affirmation type of thing it's well that's speaking important. something to into existence which yeah. i think is so important it definitely is she was doing stuff i think kind of that was ahead of her time a little bit i think people nowadays this is way more common there are po- there are life coaches telling people to do this kind of stuff yes. on a daily basis that they're paying them to do yes exactly so, anyway she was definitely driven and i think that would could be interpreted by people she was competitive with mm-hmm. as bad mm-hmm. and also just, you know, sexist people in general. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure, as with everyone that we cover, Jody was a dynamic human being. She worked hard and had ambition. She knew connections get you everywhere. And so she did like to befriend people who were well-connected. She had high standards for the people that she dated. And I'm sure she knew she was attractive though. I'm also sure that she had her, her own share of insecurities and hardships, just like everybody else. Yeah, for sure. So simply she was just like you or me or anyone else that's listening. People always want to paint people in one kind of light and we're all different dynamic. We all have bad parts about our personality and good parts. So same thing with Jody. If you watch clips of her, it's definitely clear that she had a sharp wit. She was bright and intelligent. She was clearly very social. She loved to spend time doing physical activities, partying. She wasn't necessarily trying to be a hard-nosed reporter, news freak, but she really enjoyed being a public figure and all the things that came with it. And I think that was primarily her, her ambition when it came to her news career. She just wanted to be a news anchor. Right. The day prior to her disappearance... Jody attended a golf outing and banquet playing the annual Chamber of Commerce golf event at the Mason City Country Club. The event was called early due to rain and lightning, but Jody stayed for social hour and dinner, and she was still there when her boss left after dinner. So it was probably, a, you know, a later dinner hour because we're trying to put together a timeline here. You know, there's no definitive time where she was actually leaving the country club, but her boss left after he ate dinner. I'm assuming that sometime at least after five o'clock, you know, so nice. five or six maybe. And she was still there having drinks and kind of socializing but when he left. So she was still there maybe around six or seven ish o'clock. So I don't know as hoity toity as I am <laughs> <laughs> the timeline of a golf tournament. <laughs> I would but think he would. But I, know, I know. I know. I was trying to bring something else to the table, <laughs> but no, I, I would assume, I would assume the same thing. I would assume probably dinner is served at five or six. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know how those, but then again, tea time is at like four thirty-two. sometimes. Hmm. You know, I, it's a very specific time. So I don't, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Who knows? But it was called, <laughs> early so who knows the, the whole timeline would have been thrown off a little bit regardless for sure so john van Syce stated that jody went to his house after the event to view a videotape of a birthday celebration that he had arranged for her earlier that month supposedly mm-hmm. van Syce described his association with jody as a quote father-daughter type relationship which 
no one else agrees that that's what they would have described their relationship as. Anyone else that was an acquaintance or knew them well was like, that's not a remotely close description of what I would say that he thought the relationship was. Right. And he's the only one who knows, who, who has any knowledge of Jody coming to his house. No one else saw her there. There's, it's really not, be, it's not verifiable. And if we're talking about the timeline of events, when Jody got home, she called a friend in Mississippi, Kelly Torgerson, who wasn't home at the time, but her husband answered the phone and he told Jody that he would have Kelly call her back if she got home before 10 o'clock. The husband remembered it was 8 p.m. whenever Jody called. So if Jody left the country club sometime after, say, 6.30 p.m., so he, she would have had to go to John Van Sice's house, and he said she stayed for an, like a good enough time that he watched videos with her and they hung out a bit, and then she was sub- sub- somehow able to get home by 8 o'clock to call her friend Kelly. I just don't know if that's a good... I just don't know if she even was remotely able to go to his house. And do, and watch the videotape of her birth, her surprise birthday party or whatever, mm-hmm. yeah. I just don't know if it allows for it. No, I don't think that time allows for it. We'll get into that a little bit more as we go along, but think about this timeline as we continue forward. Yep. Jody's female neighbor across the hall said that the night before she disappeared, a male came and knocked on her door loudly and proclaimed, Jody, open up. I know you're in there. After a few minutes, she said the man gave up and left. The person who did this, we don't know who it is exactly, but he obviously knew her somewhat well enough to say that he knew she was there and to think it would work to get her to open the door by just coming and knocking and saying, open up and know you're in there, <sighs> if she was in fact home at the time. So who was that person? The neighbor mm-hmm. couldn't give an exact time, so it's difficult to pinpoint if she actually was home or not. But why did that man think she was home? Was her car in the parking lot? Was she at the golf event already? And if so, was her car still at the apartment? Did someone pick her up and take her to the golf tournament? We really just don't know exactly any of that information. But it is interesting that this person, whoever it was, thought she was home. So was she home and choosing not to open the door? And if so, was it because she just didn't want to see that person that night? Or was she in there with someone else that she didn't want that person to see? Mm, like a date. Yeah, the, the possibilities are endless. So she was supposed to show up between 3 a.m. and 3.15 a.m., which, good lord. Jesus Christ. Oh I gosh. couldn't. I could never. Can you even imagine having nope. to do that on a daily basis? Oh, I just can't no. even. I was thinking about that because I was like, you know, that wouldn't, like, that job itself. Mm-hmm. I could see myself right. doing that job. Unless okay, okay. I say no, but unless I'm crawling into bed at 5 p.m. <laughs> no. And that just no. ruins your entire life <laughs> that's when everybody gets that's that's pretty much working a night shift which i applaud anybody who can work yeah. a night shift i maybe could but i could never you know oh that is some ambition right there uh, for so. sure Ooh. so she was supposed to arrive between 3 and three fifteen a.m to prep for her 6 a.m broadcast which she had at 6 a.m and then she had another one at noon and i mean talk about a day i cannot yeah. even imagine she had a routine set in place that she had, you know, fairly regularly hit. She ran late here and there, like anyone who had to be at work at 3 a.m. would do. But she was always up and at work by 4 a.m. Typically, on a normal day, it was between 3 and 
someone who watched her because there we'll t- we'll get into that but there are rumors that she had some people that were stalking her people who would watch her would be able to see that she had a pretty regular routine that she hit every single day but the day that she disappeared she was running late in the days leading up to her disappearance it had been raining off and on and a thick fog had spread over her apartment complex At 4 a.m., Amy Coons, her behind-the-scenes producer on Daybreak, called her apartment slightly frustrated. The two had an agreement that if the other didn't show up for their early shift, they would call the other, and it typically fell on Amy to call Jody because she was the one that was late a little more often than Mm. Amy was. Amy says she woke Jody up with that phone call, who mumbled a sleepy apology and told her that she would get there ASAP and hung up the phone. It would be the last time that Amy would ever talk to Jody. She says that she called back a little while later to make sure that Jody had really gotten up, but the phone just rang and rang. In an interview, Amy stated, Everything sounded normal, like I had just woken her up. What time is it? She asked the question. So I told her, Jody, it's about 10 to 4. You need to come into work. How much time is left to pursue on the show? I mean, she was obviously thinking. She was aware. She just knew she had overslept and she had to get into work. I didn't hear anything out of the ordinary. Nothing. Coombs also stated in an interview in 2011 that her being late wasn't an uncommon occurrence, just like Ashley said, and that she would usually kind of call to wake up Jody, and Jody would be at the station in less than half an hour. Yeah, they said that she lived five minutes away, so at least there was that going for her. At least there's that. I mean, mean, but I get it, like, but I get it, but also I'm like, girl, like, (laughs) let's get it together, like, you know. I mean, I can't, I don't know how I would, I don't know how it would go. I don't either, but I don't have the ambition to be a news, a newscaster specifically. Not a morning news person, that's for sure. (laughs) Without Jody, Amy had to write, produce, and host the show. It created a whole lot more work for her to do, and it made her understandably focused on getting the morning newscast out and not immediately panicking when Jody didn't show up that morning. The first person to call the cops was a KIMT staffer who just after 7 o'clock called 911 and requested the police stop by Jody's apartment to check on her. Honestly, what they said was they thought she might have fallen and hit her head in her apartment or something like that. They didn't ever think something like this had happened. Yeah, I read that Amy was like frustrated. Mm-hmm. But she also said to herself, oh, shit, I should be frustrated. Yeah. Because what if she fell and hit her head or something yeah. and something happened? And she did. She said that I didn't. I never thought that something like this could occur. Well, you never would. Of course not. Are you kidding me? The police realized immediately upon arriving at around 7.15 that something had gone terribly wrong for Jody when she rushed out of her apartment that morning to get to work, which was only five minutes away, like I just said. The red Mazda Miata that she had just bought only months earlier was still in the parking lot and scattered a decent distance around it were some of her personal items. There was a hairdryer, makeup, earrings, shoes, and a bottle of hairspray. And it seemed like maybe she had tried to swing a bag of these things at the person or threw it at him or or her. I highly doubt it's a her, but still. The way I thought of it was that somebody, like, grabbed her and scattered her items across Mm. the... Okay. Across a parking lot. I don't know why I thought of it that way, well, we, but we thought of it in different mm-hmm. ways. That what's, you throw it at them, but I thought of it as new? somebody grab. Yeah, what's new? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing, I think. I think so. Interestingly, it was well known that Jody carried multiple notebooks around with her, and yet the police found none of these at the scene. This has led those who knew her well to believe that the person who attacked her must have taken her notebooks after the fact, mm. which is just an interesting little tidbit to mm-hmm. think about. 
The police also found a bent key, which they suspected had been bent when she was accosted while trying to unlock her car, her key still being in the car's locking mechanism when it happened. Oh, it was. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. I thought it was just bent on the floor. It was. Okay. No, they're saying that she, they think it was bent by her getting accosted when she was trying to unlock it. And then it came somebody, out. Somebody. See, and that's another reason that I'm like, okay, maybe somebody grabbed her and she was mm-hmm. being pulled by a Mazda, I mean, by the car car key and then it was a Mazda Miata so it's just, you know you know um <laughs> are you saying it was driven no 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 oh, no, okay, no 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 okay. I just think that she like opened it tried to open it and somebody grabbed her okay. and then it bent the key because yeah. it takes quite a bit of yeah. force to bend a car that's, key that's definitely you know true what I mean yeah and it was bent so something happened like that for sure after processing her car, the investigators made note that the dew had been rubbed off the door and there was the outline of what they presumed to be Jody's head in the black fabric roof, leading them to believe that she'd been pushed up against her car. What they believe is her attacker came from behind and twisted her around, forcing her against the car door and her head being pushed into the fabric on the top of the Miata. Obviously, this is a small car and she's a small little lady, so mm-hmm. the, they kind of could determine the height of the person whose head it was For based sure. off of that. Forensic found a partial bloody palm print on the car and multiple witnesses unfortunately reported seeing blood and other tissue matter on the driver's side mirror. This, I know, this is obviously a good indicator that she was injured and possibly fought back against her attacker. They also found partial drag marks indicating that she had been overpowered and been moved to another vehicle, they think. It is believed that she had another visitor to her apartment that evening, which police spokesperson Ron Vandeward gave a statement that police had reason to believe it all started at her apartment. Well, as investigators did some additional digging, they found that at at the very minimum, three neighbors at the apartment complex had heard screams at about the same time she would have been getting ready to leave for work. Mm -hmm. So that could have been something that, I don't know, that that happened while – she was being accosted or mm-hmm. abducted or whatever whatever the hell happened to Jody who's in truth. It is believed that she had another visitor to her apartment that evening, which police spokesperson Ron Vandeward gave a statement that police had reason to believe it all started in her apartment. This was in large part due to the fact that the police discovered Jody's toilet seat was up in her apartment, something they chose not to reveal to the media at the time. There's a few reasons, I feel, why a, a single woman's toilet seat is going to be up, in, especially at the be- in the morning. So, you know, she could be cleaning it, which I highly doubt she was doing at 3 a.m., being late to work. Mm-hmm. I always felt like, well, she might have just been throwing up. You mm-hmm. know, she was late to work that day. Maybe she had a little too much to drink. That's what I thought when I read that the toilet seat was up. Was mm-hmm. She was at that golf tournament a mm-hmm. little late. She mm-hmm. was probably drinking. A little bit, you know, just socializing. Or if she went to Van Sice's apartment apartment or house or whatever, mm-hmm. wherever he lived, maybe he gave her a drink. And she was, like, trying to be polite because Minnesota is very polite and yeah. they don't turn down, yeah, I'll have a drink, typically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe she was having a drink with him and she drank a little too much and she was drank more than she should have and was vomiting. Mm-hmm. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. But the very obvious scenario, which 99% of women in the world (laughs) probably agree with, 
is that there's probably a dude. Yeah. And I guess it's also dependent on if there was pee in the toilet or something, you know, I guess if it was just an empty toilet sitting there and they haven't said it, you know, and I guess it's kind of a weird thing to state. It was like, there was urine in the toilet, but if there was urine in the toilet and it was up, that is probably an indicator that there was a dude there, but it's hard to know because we don't really know all that information. Was it her urine? Was it a different person's urine? Like that's a huge piece of the puzzle. And I don't think it would be up if it was her urine. Right. So, I mean, of course. (laughs) Okay. Of course. But I'm saying that's a huge piece of the puzzle that has not been divulged. Yeah. Also, did they pick up any weird fingerprints from the toilet seat? Good question. Maybe she was cleaning up her hair. Okay. So, I do this where I clean up hair because we all lose hair. Yeah. We talked about this. We talked about this. All women lose hair at... In bundlefuls. Maybe she was cleaning up her hair and instead of throwing it in the trash, she threw it in the toilet and like lifted up the toilet seat and throw it away. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It's definitely. It's, just, it's, that's a weird. It's not conclusive of no. anything really. Additionally, another neighbor spotted a white van parked with its lights on and the engine running. The van was never positively identified. Later that morning, while investigators were still processing the scene, John Van Syce showed up at the apartment complex. His behavior was erratic, and it attracted the attention of both both police and the media. He alternately referred to Jody in past and present tense. Hmm. Yeah. And said that he was the last person to see her alive. Which, how, would the, how the hell would he know that? I mean... It's weird, which is obviously a comment that immediately is going to draw an intense amount of suspicion. Mm-hmm. He That's when he told them that she visited his home on the previous night, but was initially unsure of what time she left. First, he said midnight. Then he said 11. Then he settled on 9 p.m. And at that point, he agreed to hand over the birthday tape that he had taken of her surprise birthday party. Some of this stuff sounds like a spontaneous utterance, which... Oh, for sure. Call back to episode one, where... Or two, I can't remember, where old Patsy Ramsey was like, hey, whatever the hell she said. I don't remember (laughs) that. Whatever the fuck it was. That old bitch. (laughs) So... This is definitely weird. You know, it's definitely suspicious, and... I don't know what to think about this old man. He's not that old. I mean, he's 72 now. Well, no. Yeah. But, but at that point, yeah. No. That's not that old. No. Um, actually, that's not old. No, not at all. Anyways, when he was requested to take a polygraph test, look, I know we all know that they're inaccurate, but at the time we didn't know that like we know now, but he stated in 1995 that he was, quote, offended at first, but now I understand I'm glad I did this because it proves I had nothing to do with it. Mm. So now you understand. Great. But maybe it's a slip of the tongue or maybe not using the right words. But I'm just a little perturbed by the fact that he said it proves I had nothing to do with it. Well, it proves about jack shit. It proves that you believed whatever he said is what it proves. That's what it That's exactly what it proves. Mm Mm-hmm. you didn't say so, but the thing is, he didn't say, now we can move forward and find the person who abduct- abducted her. That's not what he said. He says, it proves I didn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Which, ugh, ugh. He's kind of a narcissist about this whole situation, as we'll see. Yes. Additionally, police chief at the time, Jack Schleiper, Schleiper told the Globe Gazette about Van Sice's remarks 
anyone who truly cares about Jody's safety would not want to jeopardize that safety or our investigation by talking to the media about their involvement in our investigation. Mm-hmm. Let this bitch. <sighs> Anyways. Another item that the police collected for evidence at the scene was Jody's 84-page journal, the contents of which were not made public at the time. And that little journal will make a reappearance in a very odd situation later. Mm-hmm. Initially, search parties searched dumpsters, a nearby park, and heavily focused on the river flowing past the apartments. It was the Winnebago River, and they focused on its water and its banks. The Mason City Police Department recruited other nearby police, search dogs, and had helicopters conducting aerial searches. By mid-morning, the Iowa's DCI, which is the Division of Criminal Investigation, was investigating, and police had spread out through the complex where Jody lived, going door-to-door to the people in her building, and also the ones that faced the parking lot. One woman, who lived across the hall from Jody, mentioned that about a week prior to Jody's abduction, she was on her way to work on a Saturday morning, which she says on the weekend she had to be there at 5.30, yuck, so it was earlier than that. She says she realized she forgot something and turned around to retrieve it, go back to her apartment to retrieve it, and when she pulled up, she saw a white van sitting in the parking lot with its lights off. She said two men she didn't recognize were sitting inside the van, one was black and one was white. She felt threatened enough by the dudes to leave once again and headed to work without retrieving the item that she'd forgotten from her apartment. Which, by the way, if you ever feel that gut feeling in the pit of your stomach, Mm -hmm. always, always, 100% of the time, trust it. Because that is – that's actually a – an adaptation. That's an adaptation from a – from an instinct that we have had as – primitive human beings to have a gut instinct where we're like, this doesn't sound or this doesn't feel feel right. Mm -hmm. So everybody, especially women, Mm -hmm. (laughs) make sure you pay attention to that. And who gives a fuck if you're being rude, to be honest with you. Trust your butt. Be rude. Yeah. Because it could save your life. So luckily she left. The neighbor is the same one that heard the man bang on Jody's door the night before her disappearance, and she also had one more fairly terrible observation. The morning of the incident, she said that she was awoken by a scream, and she says she heard a slamming sound followed by a thump, and then a frightened woman cry out, No, John, or Don, Ron, Sean, something like that. Mm. Uh, don't. Mm. Which I couldn't help but say yikes. And I just am like, is this real? I mean, what are the chances of that? Oh, so, okay, so we'll flesh that out a little bit more as we go along. But if you've been paying attention at all, that could ring a little bell in your head about who that might be. There are at least five other, like you were saying a minute ago, there were at least five other residents that told police they heard cries for help that morning around the time of Jody's disappearance. Two of these people said that they did not think it was in distress as much as it was just surprised. One woman named Betty Walsh said that she thought it was just someone playing in the park, <laughs> which, uh, like, I, I, know, I know you want to think the best. Of you don't want to think someone no, just got killed in the no. parking lot. And I know there's a park next door, but it's 4 a.m. You know, who's up? <laughs> Who in the hell is out playing in the park, going screaming and shouting at yeah, 4 a.m.? Yeah, people, people, especially Iowa, Minnesota, Midwest, are kind of like, mm, it's a little bit loud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I shouldn't be so loud. Yeah, it's, it's quiet around here. 
So regardless, police were not notified of anything having to do with Jody's abduction until the news station called just after 7 o'clock a.m., <laughs> obviously, Jesus. to ask them to do a welfare check because the 6 o'clock news hour came and went and she never showed. I find that to be pretty astounding, to be honest with you, that there were five separate people that heard cries for help. Her things were scattered in the parking lot. There was blood and possible human tissue on her car. There has to be... Somebody that saw something of that nature, and no one called the police for over two and a half hours? Yeah, somebody knows some, something. Somebody knows something. I just, that's so hard to believe. Oh, for sure. Uh, but, and sad. <laughs> I mean, I know that you can be afraid for, I definitely can understand, like, something like that happening, and you're terrified that's that's going to happen to you if you say anything, or, or right. do anything, or come, right. come forward. Right. But, man, how do you live with yourself knowing that there's somebody... That got snatched up and you just saw something that you could – the littlest thing could help and you're just sitting on it. Not only somebody, somebody kind of prominent within the community mm-hmm. because people actually knew Jody yeah. in the community mm-hmm. and they were – they they felt like – okay, so growing up, I watched the Fox, the Fox Morning News mm-hmm. with my mom because she was just – she had it on. It was like Good Morning America or something. Yeah. And I – like I to this day will recognize the anchors on that show. Mm -hmm. So especially within such a small community, of course, everybody's going to feel like, oh, they know her. Yeah, they did. They definitely And they did. Mm -hmm. Within the week, the FBI was on the case and hundreds of thousands of acres of Iowa and Minnesota farmland, wetland, lakes, rivers, and various other places uh, were searched where her remains could be. But at the same time, there's so much land and there's so much murky, thick, you know, uh, muddy waters. Yeah. And there's just so much national park land where you just can't search that entire place. Right. You know, who knows where her remains could be. And not only that, we here have Wisconsin that we can go to. It's 15 minutes across the border. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's 15 minutes from here to Wisconsin. So yeah. we can go there. There's South Dakota. There's North Dakota. I mean, there are so many places that could could be searched. Yeah. Granted, somebody probably doesn't, generally speaking, wouldn't want to drive as far as possible. You know, you're probably going to try to want to go as close as possible that that you can get away with it because you don't want to be driving around with this person, but who knows what happened. That's true. Understandably, people were shocked and terrified about the situation, especially other young female anchors in the area. The way the news went back in the 90s was a more one-woman operation of writing, driving out to interview, taping, editing, all doing all that business yourself. So mm-hmm. the other female anchors in the area feared that they would be the next victim of some crazed newsy killer. Mm-hmm. Jody's story was featured on Oprah and Sally Jesse Raphael for anyone who <laughs> remembers back to old red glasses <laughs> herself. And <laughs> I remember watching her and Gary Peterson, a news director in Iowa, began looking into it extensively initially to air a few pieces for the anniversary of her disappearance. But he began to uncover enough to make it something that was much more. He is now retired. And with his wife, Gladys, they are the two only medical legal death investigators in the country. Two of the only. There's a couple more. Working for Southeast Minnesota's Fillmore County Coroner's Death Scene Investigators. They investigate any deaths that take place outside of hospitals, essentially, and they continue to look into unsolved cases like Jody's. 
And so they've helped out with the investigation as far as looking into it you know, a little bit further whenever the police are have kind of run out of resources. And there is another anchor, Josh Benson, who's been looking into her case as well. Jody's family hired a 25-year sheriff department veteran named Jerry Korber as a private investigator into Jody's disappearance. And he was... a eventually asked to stop investigating by the police chief at the time mm. who we mentioned earlier Jack Schleiper and who who said that he was interfering with the infish, official investigation Schleiper was said to be very territorial about the investigation and wasn't keen on letting any other agency or department get involved which fuck off i mean if it's going to help solve an abduction right a white more resources this is what i don't understand about our our system is that if it's going to help solve an investigation, why are you so why like what does it matter what jurisdiction you know yeah, you know your jurisdiction. You shouldn't let your I don't understand that yeah you shouldn't let your big dick games get in the way absolutely of solving a terrible situation that's happening I never I like I for real don't understand it. there must be a reason for it that I don't understand but I don't understand so somebody let me know I'll tell you what it is. It's insecurity. That's what it is. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, that said, there were a number of officers that worked their buns off on the case, primarily Frank Stearns and Ron Vandewerd, who handled it from the time that Jody disappeared. Frank Stearns is a real big dick motherfucker. <laughs> for real. <laughs> Thank you for that. You're I'm welcome. Sure, I'm sure he would appreciate it as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Frank, if you have any information, let us know. <laughs> so those two have worked on the case from the beginning, and I think they continue to work on the case. They 100% do. Mm -hmm. One of the one of the articles that I read from 2019 and 2020, Frank Stearns is involved in. So. He 100% continues to work on it. Again, BDMF. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, goodness. Okay, so law enforcement doesn't have a ton of theories, at least that they're sharing. I, and I understand when you're... That I understand. Yeah, when you have a case this cold, also, you don't want to let out stuff that might be able to help you actually identify the person that mm -hmm. actually did this. Mm -hmm. But in 1995, there just wasn't a lot of DNA testing that was going on. And DNA analysis has come a long way since then, though it isn't necessarily the sure thing scientific proof it's claimed to be. Okay. And just as a little shout out, I was so like gripped by this Nova special. If you want to go check that out, it was so good about DNA analysis and just different scientific forensics that we try to use in court and how it's utter bullshit. <laughs> so uh, you should check that out, Nova. I was trying to look up the episode so I could call it out a little bit more, but I couldn't find it. So if you can, let me know. Also, not Nova, but definitely less intellectual. Adam Ruins Everything oh. talks about it too. Okay. I like Adam Ruins I Everything. I love Adam Ruins Everything because he literally like breaks down mm -hmm. everything and oh, i'm yeah. like what i know like <laughs> the way cities were set up so that we have to have cars and they oh everybody just is out to screw the us the automotive industry mm. oh it's it's they, nuts yeah they designed essentially designed mm -hmm. their cities so mm -hmm. okay and back then cell phones were not widely used text messaging didn't exist you know there's a few factors that make it kind of obvious why it was easier to kind of snatch somebody especially high profile just right out of the blue and nothing is ever heard from her again they believe that there are no more than two people 
it's very possible there was only one person involved in this um, abduction. We know that people love to talk about their murders, so the more involved, the more people were involved, the higher the chances that someone would have talked by now. And here it is, we're almost 20 years later, and the case is still unsolved. So it's probably likely there are probably minimal people involved in yeah. this. Let's get to the juice of this story, the piece, the pieces of interest, the persons of interest <laughs> in this case. This is, I mean, oh my gosh, you might as well just name it. We think John Van <laughs> We think John Van Sy's killed Jody Who's in truth. I don't know how we legally can. I mean, talk there's no way it. to do it. It's like hashtag Burke did it. <laughs> I'm trying to get that trending so everybody <laughs> get on the bandwagon. Hashtag John Van Sy's killed Jody Who's in truth. Van Sass did it. John Van Sice, we've talked about him a little bit already. He was Jody's supposed closest male friend. He was over 20 years older than her, which is no big deal, mm-hmm. but it's just something to mention. Mm-hmm. He was quickly detained and questioned and named a person of interest in her disappearance. He was heavily focused on by police and given many polygraph tests, like Bianca said, but he was never arrested. By his own admission, he was a person of interest in a homicide case in the past. In fact, over the years, he has come into direct first-person contact with five fucking people who have met untimely ends under mysterious circumstances. Authorities in two states have shown interest in him and his activities. That is something I did not know. Yep. Oh, my God. By all accounts, John Van Sice has a short fuse, a hot temper, and it was witnessed by many. Jody herself told one friend that she was frightened and intimidated by his temper, which is not a good sign. When one of her friends asked if she and Van Sice were an item, her response was, absolutely not, and said she wanted to play the field and not commit to any one man. Okay. I can see that, but I also can also see in their relationship, unless I am not getting the full story of it, that... Maybe she wasn't as clear about that with him. With him, yeah. Yeah, Maybe. It's a fact that the two spent quite a bit of time together, both privately and publicly. Van Sy spent money on her, took her on trips, and two weeks before her disappearance, he threw her that surprise birthday party that they were supposedly watching the video of. Well, I mean, so her personality is described as not like being confrontational. Uh So she maybe she felt like it was confrontational to tell him, hey... As much as I appreciate this, you gotta, like, you gotta cool it because I'm not interested in you yeah. in that particular way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. That's, that. that's an awkward feeling. Mm-hmm. It is not known what exactly their relationship entailed, but Jody did spend more time with him than any other friend or person in her life, it appears. On the flip side, some close to them have said that Van Sice's admiration for Jody verged on the obsessive, mm. to the point that he named his boat Jody. He was quoted as saying, you just can't help but love the woman. You just can't help it. I think that more people than not said that he was a little obsessive. A little obsessed with her. She mentioned him in her journal and often went out drinking and dancing with him. So who knows? Who knows what they really, their relationship really entailed. Many people close to her say he wanted something more than she was willing to give him. And there were numerous witnesses to him getting angry with another man for dancing with her, which we'll talk about later. One neighbor even stated, and get ready for this, you guys, that it was not unusual to see Van Sice sitting out in his car in the apartment parking lot in the middle of the goddamn night. Oh, that's not unusual. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. My face that's is so one of weird. shock. I don't I, like it. How do you... 
that is horrifying. Okay. Yeah. I had a, I had an ex one time that did that where he would sit there and call me over and over from the parking lot sometimes because I wouldn't answer the phone and I wouldn't answer the door. And it was the scariest thing. I was like, he's going to climb up to the second floor and break and, in. Yeah, for this. sure. For sure. Ugh, that's scary. But to play devil's advocate, it is possible that she told him she was concerned about a possible stalker and he was trying to be her protector, knight in shining armor. Mm. Or, you know, he hung around in her parking lot in the wee hours of the night because he's a mad, jealous asshole and knows that she got gets up for work early. And if a man stayed over, he'd be able to witness it. Perhaps. Oh, okay. Who knows? Yeah. Possibly that previous night, Jody had a man over and they stayed up a little late. It caused her to sleep past her or not set her alarm. She rushes him out and herself out the door, and there is Van Syce sitting there in the parking lot, bearing witness to whatever had just happened. Mm, okay. The possibilities, again, are kind yeah. of endless. The weekend before her disappearance... According to sources, she went out to a lake about 140 miles away with John and his son. They had a great time. It was beautiful, la-di-da. Mm-hmm. However, some additional information has come out recently... In fact, as recently as 2019, November of 2019, KTTC, who runs out of Rochester, Minnesota, ran a report by cold case investigator Steve Ridge. And he found that the weekend that she went out with John Van Syce, Jody had also met with two young men at the lake with a master ski craft boat. Ridge spoke with two witnesses who were at the lake that Saturday, but have been told that contrary to his typical demeanor, he did not overreact, he didn't cause a scene, although he wasn't particularly enthused with the whole situation. Mm -hmm. But witnesses state that once aboard the other boat, whose intrude and her female friend were observed drinking and eventually singing on top of the enclosed engine compartment of the boat, and that they were captured by the boat's owner on video. Of course, the videotape is, as of the writing of the article in November 2019, in the hands of investigators, and it's not an obtainable thing to view. However, in addition, the boat owner would not give out his name, but he did say that he did make a habit out of inviting young women onto his boat and recording them. Sequel. So. <laughs> It was described by one of her friends, Tammy, that her and Van Syce were being lovey-dovey that weekend. So I'm kind of confused because we kind of just get different stories all yeah. over the place. And I can see how maybe if you're having a good time and your your relationship is kind of on the verge of being somewhat romantic. That and you're close anyway, you know, you're close friends. And so I can see that maybe it would just kind of the lines of the relationship would get blurred. But when she's likely not taking it as seriously as he is mm -hmm. it could get a little bit scary i think for him with him and with his temper and with that jealousy temper, for sure but, i mean yeah but it doesn't matter regardless of if she said you know we're together like it doesn't make it okay for him to ha go into a fucking fit of jealous rage yeah yeah so like you said he claims that the last time he saw jody was when she left his home the night before she died after they watched the video of her birthday party additionally the next morning the morning that jody was abducted he called this other girl friend of his who he went on walks with every single morning telling her that he would be unable to go on their usual morning walk that day and gave her no further explanation mm -hmm. Then he ran into another friend around 7 a.m. before the police had been called to do a wellness check on Jody at the convenience store, and he told that friend, Jody is gone. Okay. So when pressed further, he said, She didn't show up for work this morning. We got to get over to her apartment. Why? 
How did he know she was missing? Yeah. Did someone at the station talk to him before the police? No. That's the only, the only reason that he would know that. No way, dude. That's the only reason. We don't know. We can't say for sure. I know. I know. <laughs> Why? <laughs> like, if I was missing. Maybe just to say, have you seen her? If that is thought to be her best friend. Ah, but it's unlikely. That, but it's so. Because yeah. they didn't even know anything was wrong. They really thought maybe, oh, is she maybe she fell. So who knows? Right. Who knows? It's very suspicious that he, that he was jumping the gun in this way. So those two, John Van Syce and the friend that he ran into at the convenience store, showed up at the key apartments, which was Jody's, later in the morning, being described as pale and nervous. When asked why he was there, he told them he was trying to find out when he and Jody were going water skiing next. <laughs> which is odd either way about it, because he knew she'd be at work at the time, and what the fuck kind of <laughs> response is that? Why would you even ask that, that question? That is stupid... Why would you say that to the police? I was just coming over to see when, when, we when me and Jody were going to go water skiing next, man. Then he began to voluntarily blurt out more information out of nervousness, fear, or some other awkward reason, saying that he had a close personal relationship with her and he could prove it he was the last person to see her uh, like, like you said like, yeah what the fuck why why say that don't say that how do you even know that how do you even know that that's what killers say because right. they are the only ones who could really know who they all who else they saw right before they died before they died help me please so yeah john van Sice shows up erratic as hell and attracts everybody the police the media and he alternately refers to Jody in past and present tense. What? And says that he's the last person to see her alive. Like Ashley literally just said, this is a comment that's going to draw suspicions to everybody. For sure. That's very, very concerning. Like you said, it's a killer comment. Yeah, nobody ever wants to refer to their missing friend in the past tense. You would never do that. If oh, you were missing? She was such, she was such a great friend. What? <laughs> if you were missing and somebody came to my house, I'd be like, yeah, that's that's my girl. What about it? Like, where, what's going on with her? We're gonna find well, Let's find her. Bitch. Let's find her big ol' ass. She's, <laughs> <laughs> just look for her ass. Okay. Anyways. Okay, okay. <laughs> so he told, he tells them that she visited his home the previous night, but he's initially unsure of what time she left. Mm. First it's midnight, then he's like, eh, maybe it was like an hour, maybe it was like 11. And then he's like, mm, maybe it was two hours later. Maybe it was nine. Okay, that's a big variation. It's a huge variation. <laughs> I, I sure the hell know if I went to bed at nine or midnight. There's a big difference There's there. There's a huge... <laughs> oh, my God. There's a big difference. Uh -huh. So then he, at that point, he agrees to hand over the surprise birthday tape that he made. Okay. Uh, okay. So if we remember back to the timeline of Jody's that day, she was at the golf tournament. She left some time after dinner, then called her friend Kelly around 8 p.m. It is doubtful that she had time to stop by John's before going home and making that call. Did she go over there after that and stay for only a short while, under an hour? It just doesn't seem like it fits in the timeline, this visit to his house. Also, how long is this birthday videotape? Well, gosh, I don't know, because it sure seems like it was a big production. Confident that it didn't, it wasn't less than an hour. No. Especially, oh my God, especially in the 90s. Do you know, like, the effects that you would put on, like, those little video cameras? <laughs> my grandpa has them all over the place. It's well, great. Plus, it's not like he, like, the minute she walked in the door, he was, he had press play, <laughs> and then the minute... It was over. He was yeah. scooting her out the door. So yeah. it's just very unlikely that she went by his house. Unless it was just in an oddly placed time. Then again, he said she left at nine. 
Okay. Who knows? Why did he voluntarily offer up all this information to make him an automatic person of interest to the police? Was he just thinking like a jackass or was he purposefully trying to make it seem like, whoa, boy, this has shaken me in my boots right now. What's happened to my friend? Help me, help me. I'm in panic. He was also overheard at one point that morning saying, I'm really sweating this because I'm already under investigation for a double homicide in Newton, Iowa. Why? Why are you under investigation <laughs> for everything? And why are you offering this up? Because they didn't even know this. <laughs> the FBI later confirmed that he was investigated because there was a couple who were brutally murdered in their trailer on a ranch where he was hired as a part-time farmhand back in the 80s. Hey. <laughs> oh, so but he is just offering up way too, too much, much information. information and it doesn't it just doesn't make sense unless he's just panicking for no reason if he has no reason to panic but he's doing it i just don't really understand other than that he's guilty as hell so a close acquaintance and a bartender at the sports bar that jody and her friends attended about two or three times a week and who also attended the surprise birthday party for jody says it was common knowledge that van Sice wanted something deeper out of he and jody's relationship and that jody resisted this same woman on the day that jody disappeared found van Sice sitting dejected and alone in his van in her parking lot he seemed agitated and angry repeatedly saying why did they do this to me Homst. <laughs> Homst, what are you talking about? I don't know, dude. Yeah, it's all about him, you know? But maybe it is. A friend from Mason City that wants to remain unnamed Mm. says that Jody told her that Van Sice almost date-raped her after her party. Which, who knows, but at the same time, uh, I don't know. Another friend swears that Jody told them that she wanted him to cool off his intensity about her and that she was not interested in him in that way. But still, she went to the lake with him and his son after the party, so it's just possible that he tried to date rape her and she continued to hang out with him. Maybe, as we go along, I have maybe a possible reason why she would do this. That's more explainable than just that she couldn't bear to break off her ties with him. Mm. But I don't know how much I trust this unnamed source who says that... Who knows? Maybe he did. I don't know. Right, right, right. But I I felt the need to mention it. Okay, so another person who is a person of interest in this case is a self-professed major fan of Jody's who lived down the street on Kentucky Avenue. This man told the police the morning she disappeared that he saw a mid-80s white Ford Econoline van sitting Mm. by the curb in the parking lot of Jody's apartment building. The man named Randy Linderman said that he supposedly slowed down when he drove by because he noticed the van and thought it might be a police van. Since that statement, the van has been talked about a lot in various media outlets, but it has never been found, and chances are high that the van may never have even existed in the first Mm. place. It is well known that killers will attempt to insert themselves into investigations from very early on, Mm -hmm. often being cited in the background at the scene of the crime or offering information to police without provocation. They just want to be involved. Weird. I know. That seems like a strange coincidence. (laughs) There's There's a couple people like this in this story. That seems like quite the possibility in the case of Randy Linderman, who police named as a person of interest in the case. He told police that he had a dark truck at the time, and friends and family of Jody mentioned that on numerous occasions, Jody was distressed by a dark truck that seemingly stalked her. There's also another woman in the neighborhood that ran early in the mornings who said that she was made to feel uncomfortable about a dark truck following her as well. 
Not that Randy Linderman would have been the only one in town with a dark truck, but it is just worth mentioning. Right. He did insert himself into this on top of everything. Okay, so on top of that, why was he driving past her apartment around 4 in the morning? He worked at a place called Capital Industries in Forest City, Iowa, which was about 35 miles or 45 minutes away, and he had to be at work at 8 o'clock. He typically carpooled with a coworker, and you bet your butt that they weren't going in at 4 a.m. to Not get to, to work there at 8. At eight. <laughs> no. There's no traffic. I mean, Iowa. Yeah. Not that there's no traffic in Iowa. It's just like it's not like you have to leave at 4 o'clock in the morning like you do if you live in L.A. to get somebody somewhere by 8 when it's 10 miles down the street. Gross. It's disgusting. It is worth noting that he told police when he came to them with his van story that he was on his way to work three hours earlier than he needed to be. That said, he was interviewed extensively following his pushing his way into the case with his eyewitness account and even agreed to polygraph testing, saying that the police had to see if I seen what I saw. Uh Uh-uh. Considering he's the sole witness to a van that has yet to be found. Okay. Plus, there has been mention elsewhere of a white van. And according to Ron Vandewerd from police reports that night, there had been a white van in the neighborhood that night. So, who knows about old Linderman. I think maybe he was a little obsessed with her and wanted to insert himself into the case just for that reason in itself. I don't know if I find him as suspicious as one other fella. Who? (laughs) John Vandeslice. What's his name? Van Sykes. Van Sykes. God damn it. Oh, I'm I'm mixing him up with Vandewerd. Okay. So... Shortly before her death, Jody was very upset by the death of a friend of hers named Bill Pruin. He was a 43-year-old farmer and considered to be a very eligible bachelor in Mason City. Pruin hung out at The Other Place, which was a bar that they all hung out at regularly, and Sully's, among a few others that her and her friends frequented often, and he was a part of their social group. Although the specifics of their relationship aren't clear, it was said by many that Pruin and Jody were incredibly close after meeting in 1995. Bill Pruin and John Van Sice were said to definitely engage in some jealous posturing with each other about their relationships with Jody. There was a story that was passed from server to server at the other place about one night when John Van Sice and Bill Pruin nearly came to blows because Pruin and Jody were dancing oh, together. Oh, God. Oh, what a nightmare. So... Three months before Jody's abduction, Bill Pruin was found dead in his home from a gunshot wound to his chest. It was initially ruled a suicide, officials saying that one of the guns from his gun safe was found near his body. We know that earlier in that day he had purchased a new tractor and he was so excited by that new toy that he chose to drive it all the way home and left his truck in the parking lot of the tractor dealership. Oh my God, just Iowa things. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> after, after he failed to show up for a number of events the following day, his friend, Bill Robinson, stopped by his house to check on him. He said that the kitchen door was ajar when he showed up with the keys hanging in the outside keyhole. That's a little suspicious. He left thinking Bill Pruin was out in the field somewhere, and it wasn't until the following day that Bill Pruin's mother, worried about his lack of contact, showed up and discovered his body. Oh, no. I know. That's terrible. He was found face down in a semi-fetal position just inside the dining room. Oh, no. It appeared he was shot in the doorway between dining and kitchen rooms and had fallen back against a chair before collapsing on the floor. His glasses were still on his face, and he was in full work clothes. The weapon was a forty-four Magnum, and it was found two feet away. After testing, the gun revealed there were no prints on it from anyone, even Pruin. 
That's weird. That's not weird. That's fine. No, totally normal. <laughs> uh, why in the world would you leave gun print? Why would you leave wow. fingerprints on a gun if you committed suicide? You would clean it up after you of died. Of course. That's what I would do. What a dirty bird. <laughs> what a dirty bird. Apparently, if used for suicide, a gun like that wouldn't be anywhere near the body, as I read, as recoil would make it fly across the room. Also, if it was used at such close range, it should have left burning and blistering on Bill's skin, which there was no sign of. It was pretty obvious that he was shot from a distance. There was no trace of gunshot residue on his hands, and several of his close friends and family said he would never enter the dining room and walk on the white carpet with his work boots, yet they remained on him. Huh. You know what? That's such a family thing to say. Really? Really? Like, oh, he would have never walked on that carpet. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Well, you know, After working. You know what's funny is that's not something I'm used to living in Texas, I guess, but li- but living here just for, you know, a month or whatever. Take uh, off your boots. Yeah, because you, you, there's muck on the ground all the mm-hmm. time in the winter, especially. Mm-hmm. There's just wet muck. Mm-hmm. Working in the field, I'm sure he had muck all over his boots. For sure. And yeah, you do take off your shoes whenever you enter Absolutely. a house. Because otherwise you're tracking in muck. muck. Mm-hmm. So... Those were still on him, suspiciously enough. But after an appeal from his family, the coroner re-examined the case and was convinced to change the cause of death to undetermined on Pruin's official death certificate. Jody, at the time, was open and vocal about the fact that she thought his death was suspicious, saying things did not add up, and hell no, they, they don't. don't. Similar to Jody's case, Bill Pruin's remains unsolved to this day. Oh, wow. In years after his death, one of his exes says that in the days before his death, he was worried about some information that he had on some high-profile people involved in the local drug trade, saying when they would go out that he would often point out some of these people to her. That's just something that we always hear, I feel like. We always hear local drug trade. <laughs> Who knows if it's true or not, but if he did yeah. know somebody, maybe that was a high-profile drug trafficker, maybe. You know they want him dead, for yeah. sure. What was the nature of Jody and Pruin's relationship? Was her disappearance related to his death? Did they both know something that others felt threatened them? Was Pruin killed out of jealousy and then Jody later because she suspected the killer? Or what? It's pretty unlikely that two people from a small town in the same social circle frequenting the same places have incidents within months of each other and they're not related, in my opinion. I think it's pretty obvious that these two incidents are related. For sure. It's definitely suspicious. So let's talk about some more ambiguous possible witnesses and or suspects. There was the female runner I briefly mentioned a little while ago who had mentioned to the police that she saw a white van in the parking lot. And this woman has vivid recollections of the scene immediately following Jody's abduction. She ran the same course past the key apartments every morning. She said in the course of her running so early in the pre-dawn hours that she learned how to be hyper vigilant about her surroundings and the cars on the road. Good for her, dude. For real. So one, I mean, I guess you have to be. I mean, yeah. So one morning she had a scary experience, and this is around the same time as Jody's disappearance, when a small car appeared seemingly out of nowhere, it pulled up right alongside her and kept pace with her. Uh-uh. The sun wouldn't be up for another hour, but the car's lights were off. Mm. Get out of there, girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she refused to make eye contact with the driver and continued on her way, not acknowledging them at all, which I think probably is the best course of action. That's what I would do. 
Eventually, he sped off ahead of her, making her breathe a sigh of relief until he suddenly busted a U and came straight toward her, blinding her with his headlights. She immediately started running home in an erratic way, going on lawns, across roads, and the driver eventually lost interest in trying to keep up with her and drove away. Oh, my God. On Monday, June 26th, the day before... Jody's disappearance. disappearance. The woman experienced another frightening event on her morning run. It was pre-dawn, and she was approaching the Keys' apartments and noticed a white male in his mid-30s talking to a black male child between 11 and 13 years old. She says she took interest in the two initially because the man looked like someone else that she knew. She didn't think she would have thought much of the pair, but when the man saw her, he immediately stopped talking to the boy and gave her a cold stare as she passed them. The boy then began to pedal his bike right beside her, keeping pace with her for several blocks. Why? So weird. She said they didn't say anything to each other. He never tried to get in her way or or anything, but he just kept at pace with her for a couple blocks. That's so weird. Uh, She said his aggressiveness surprised and frightened her, and after a while, she decided to shake him by sprinting away as fast as he could, and he ended up giving up and riding away. She doesn't know what she interrupted between the two, but she suspects it was some kind of illegal transaction. We have no idea. And we really don't have any idea if it's in any way in any way related to Jody's disappearance or not. But it is an interesting situation in her apartment complex parking lot the mm-hmm. day before she disappeared. Yeah. On the morning of Jody's abduction, the runner said that she overslept five minutes, which is something that she had never done before, which I find to be astounding. Good for her. I know. I was like, way to go, lady. She contends to this day that some kind of angel made her sleep in that morning to avoid seeing something awful or becoming a victim herself. Once she started her run, things were relatively peaceful and she began the deep rhythmic breathing she did every morning once she found her groove. And at a four-way stop, she hesitated and jogged in place while she waited for a small car at the stop sign to go through the intersection. Instead of moving forward, the car sat and waited while both she and the driver just stared at each other until they finally gave up and drove off. She said it resembled the one that had followed her that one scary morning. Which gave her a little bit of a fright, I would say. Of course. I'm gonna, it's going to give you pause. Mm-hmm. Then, as she approached the key apartments, she said a car without headlights suddenly barreled out of the parking lot, nearly hitting her. She said the driver was clearly in a hurry, driving erratically, and headed south on Kentucky Street. She said the car was really nice. It was nice and new. It was shiny. And this caused her to take note because the ones that harassed runners were usually junkers. And it wasn't until after she learned of Jody's disappearance that she thought maybe the car had actually had more significance significance than what she initially thought she said she never saw a white van but for what it's worth figuring if it was ever there it was gone before she could even see it after finding out what happened to jody the runner went to the police and told them the story and they were encouraging saying that she may have information to break the case she also mentioned that they never asked for her name or info so that they could follow up with her which is really I mean, that's kind of troubling and definitely a very interesting... Yeah. What's going on there? Like, what the hell would you not ask that lady for Why are you asking me for my name? That's weird. You don't have a lot of witnesses at any point. (laughs) Absolutely. Even now. Yeah. So I just find that to be odd, unless they just were thinking she had nothing because she didn't have the license plate number, but still, surely she could give some sort of description. I don't know. Right. You don't know what someone may know. She was there. She was one of the only people there. Oh, well, I guess. (laughs) The weekend prior to Jody's disappearance had been the annual Civil War battle and encampment 
Reenactment, a big to-do with lots of reenactments, entertainment, and many attendees stayed at the campground adjacent to the key apartment complex where Jody lived. Around the time that the attack happened, some campers were beginning to stir, I don't know how, and could have been witness to something vital about what happened that morning. Mm -hmm. But nobody has come forward saying that they did. But just out there, you know, it's like if you were at this thing and you saw something weird, maybe you know something. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can remember something and you could bring that to the police. Before dawn, a female resident in the complex whose apartment overlooked the entrance to the parking lot had her window open and heard two men having a conversation that she couldn't quite make out, but that she thought was odd due to how early it was. Of course, because it's early as fuck. Yeah. She said that the men left in two separate cars right after one another, one having a loud muffler and turning left on Kentucky while the other turned right, grinding its gears as it pulled out of the parking lot. I wonder if that was one of the ones that almost hit the runner. Yeah. Multiple people close to Jody said that in the weeks leading up to her abduction, she seemed incredibly exhausted and distracted. She told friends and family and the police about her concerns that she had a stalker or multiple stalkers. On numerous occasions, she told her mother and sister that she felt that she was being followed to work by a dark truck. Mm. She reported it to the police and even got a police escort to work. She said she was unable to see who was driving the vehicle due to the dark tint on the windows, but I was wondering why she never tried to get a driver's Driver, license. A license. Plate. Yeah, for a sure. license plate. Not to blame the victim no, no, in any no, way. No, of I just course. I was curious because they didn't even t- mention that part. And I'm like, I wonder why they never said, get the license plate, lady. Her friend in Mississippi that she'd called the night before she disappeared sent a letter that she had received on June 27th, the day Jody disappeared, that she received from her, where she wrote that she was afraid that she had a stalker. Oh, my God. I know. It's kind of very, very ominous. Yes. According to California forensic psychiatrist Dr. Park Dietz, the question is not if a celebrity has stalkers, but just how many they Mm. have. Dietz has spent years researching and testifying against serial killers like Jeffrey Dahmer and John Hinckley, and he says that local TV reporting is increasingly becoming a more and more dangerous profession, and there's little legal protection that can be found if the people who are being stalked even realize that they have a stalker in the first place. It isn't until a stalker has really crossed the line and done something terrible that the law can intercede in any way. And as we've heard in many true crime cases, sometimes that doesn't even really yeah, make any absolutely, absolutely. It's very scary to have people who are that unhinged be obsessed with you. So, moving on to theories, there are four major things hindering the investigation and solving Jody's disappearance. One is the lack of motive. Two is the lack of physical evidence. Then there's the lack of eyewitnesses. And the last is the lack of a body. Obviously, these really don't make it easy to convict someone or even really get solid persons of interest unless they're just going to admit to it. Yeah. No, I mean, the lack of the body, I I think, is the main the main thing that everybody's like, well, there's no body, so we can't really convict anybody. Yeah. So was this a random attack? Did someone see her alone in her parking lot and see her that she was distracted in the early hours of the morning and attack her? Mm-mm. It's possible, but I just don't think that's the case. I don't either. Was she targeted and killed because of some information that she was privy to and could expose publicly? I don't think that either. There is some, you know, there's always going to be some rumors about drugs. And not necessarily that she was involved in drugs, but that Mason City and Clear Lake are right off Highway 35. Shout out Highway 35 because I've lived by it in (laughs) both places I've lived. (laughs) Oh, Um, yeah, no kidding. There's a Highway 35 right here. Yeah, well, it's the same one. Oh, it's the same one? Mm -hmm. Oh, 
Hey, look at that. I've never lived near a Highway 35, <laughs> but look at that. I took it, take it every morning. It's fine. Uh-huh. <laughs> so there are rumors that in town, obviously there always are, in towns, small towns like this and that are little thoroughfares with a major highway, It's a, they always say they're a hub for drug traffic, and maybe they are. They lead some to speculate whether Jody was involved in this or perhaps new information that she was a threat for possessing. Some posit that she could have even been investigating some sort of drug trafficking ring, which was a topic for her news slot. Though her former boss finds that pretty laughable, saying that it's not your typical morning news fodder, and he wouldn't have ever assigned her on such an assignment. And also, like we talked about. Yeah, she's more interested on being on air than actually doing any investigative research. Also, I got to tell you, I was talking about the morning news, Good Morning LA, or Good Morning America that I used to watch. Yeah, it wasn't like that. It was like... Check out this dog show, and this dog is now the princess of the United States, or whatever it <laughs> yeah. was. Cute and morning pictures. Yeah. It was like a morning, like yeah. good morning, like thing. It was yeah. never something that I don't think that was something that she would be covering on the morning news. I either. think a heartbreaking news story would be more in the PM hours, but yeah. it just doesn't. It wasn't her forte anyway. There's also the possibility of it being one of these stalkers that she was worried about, as there are numerous cases of female anchor women having stalkers who attack and murder them, unfortunately. And they're fairly high profile and out in the public eye, and that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty easy to kind of figure out their schedule that way because yep. they're they're on the television. You can follow them from the news station if you want to. Mm-hmm. It's just not good. Mm-hmm. But as we know, something like 80% of murder victims know their killer, either intimately or casually, and half of those victims have a romantic or a social relationship with them. Additionally, females are much more likely to be violently attacked by an acquaintance, friend, or an intimate partner. Well, aren't we lucky? Yay! I will slash your balls off. <laughs> when you take that into consideration, the chances are pretty high that Jody knew her attacker. Mm-hmm. So there have been some people who speculate that... There are various large bodies of water around the area where Jody went missing, and those could be places where her body was dumped. And another place is the Myrie Brig Island Park, which is a large national park with a lot of land on it, that there are people who believe she might her body might be there. There are a number of psychics. I know that this is – I'm not saying that I necessarily believe this, but just let's take all the different theories into – Consideration. Consideration here. Don't get too upset about it. There are a number of psychics who have surprised investigators with what they were able to glean about Jody's disappearance and life without having prior knowledge of the case, supposedly. One woman believes an elderly woman living below Jody witnessed her attack in the dark that morning and out of fear never spoke a word of it to anyone. She believes Jody is buried somewhere in the Myrie Briggs National Park. There's another who says that Jody had a male visitor that Monday night before her disappearance, and they stayed up late into the night talking, which was an explanation for her being late for work, which she didn't supposedly know, but then she said this. So this man began talking to Jody about marriage, much, much to her surprise, but in great deal because he was under pressure from others to quote-unquote do something about things Jody was learning about his exploits and their exploits. Mm. In previous weeks, Jody had grown wary of this man, this is what the psychic says, because of the things that she learned about him and was concerned about his motives. She claims it became a keep your friends close and your enemies closer situation, which goddamn, dude, because I started getting that feeling about Van Sice a little bit. For sure. 
He didn't expect Jody to rebuff his advances, and he left angrily, coming up with an alternative plan to keep her quiet. He enlisted the help of another person, someone Jody knew, and they went about their plan to quote-unquote take care of her. She claims that the two were able to get a hold of a contractor's van and needed to get it back to its owner in a timely manner, making the man frustrated that Jody was running late that morning, but they knew that she had to come out at some point because she had to go to work. She says Jody was very distracted from being running late and was simply not paying attention or worrying with anything, especially with the strange van in the parking lot. She says that she was hurriedly trying to unlock her car door when she was surprised from behind, throwing her hands up defensively and dropping the hairdryer and other items and screaming, no, don't, which, as we remember, a number of witnesses say they did hear something like that, if you recall. She says Jody was subdued by perhaps hitting her head against the side mirror and was put in the van where she got a very strong aroma-like paint. She says that Jody was alive for at least 36 to 48 hours before she was killed, and she was in and out of consciousness in the van due to her head injury, but she heard two men distinctly talking. So this is just obviously a psychic thing. She also, though, gave... (laughs) This is like... It was so crazy. I think there was either another one or it's the same one where she gave the initials of J and T of the first names of the people who did this and that there was a younger one and an older one and the younger one was almost jealous of the older one's relationship with her because he was attracted to her and thought she was really pretty and wanted no part in this what they were doing which I was like if that (laughs) not to be like the most speculative person in the world but just because it's crazy how many things that she like knew nailed John and his son was named Tucker I'm almost positive right okay and the son according to her wasn't really wanting to do this but if it's your dad maybe you you have to you feel obligated or whatever but I mean like I said we don't know what kind of credence to put into this psychic but at the same time we know I feel at least that anything is possible and Mm -hmm. it's also just when you put in take into consideration everything else she got right maybe that is maybe that is somewhat how it went and then that sure does fit with John Van Sice you know I just want to say 100% John Van Sice I I, uh, I'm saying his voice in a (laughs) that's how flabbergasted I am So as of October 2002, John Van Sice now lives in Arizona. He is 72 years old. He has advanced Alzheimer's Mm. and he is, uh, as of 2010, still a person of interest. And he works as a loss, as loss prevention for a grocery chain. Well, he probably doesn't anymore. Probably not at this point, but he did. Yeah. Right after he fled or left um, Iowa. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, I read an article that said that he was planning on moving back to Iowa. Okay. Which would be quite now that interesting. He has, now yep. that he has Alzheimer's? Yeah. Okay. Which would be quite interesting thing to do, I guess. Yeah. Interesting move. <laughs> so in 2002, when he was working at a grocery store doing loss prevention, there was a man that was caught concealing things in his grocery bags and van sice and another security guard handcuffed him and walked him into the back of the store to interrogate him van sice claims that the man fought and fought and fought and ended up breaking free of his in the other guard's grasp fell down hit his head on a wall and it left him with two major head lacerations knocked out teeth and massive brain swelling he died days later it was deemed that criminal charges would not be appropriate in this case but hold on one second, because how 
hard do you have to hit the wall in order to have massive brain swelling that kills you? Yeah. It seems like you would have to at least be pushed if not if that was even possible in the first place. I mean, for concealing things in your grocery bags, for shoplifting. What a bunch of shit. I so, mean, okay. I mean, that's fucked up. That's fucked yeah. up. His family was trying to sue them and they just didn't get anything out of it. So, they just said uh he was fighting them and that's it. Mm. Mm-hmm. But let's revisit those instances one more time for old John Van Syce, in which he has been a person of interest in a suspicious death or disappearance. In 1983, the couple Steve Fisher and Melissa Gregory were murdered in their mobile homes in on the farm in Iowa. They were literally bashed to death and that murder those murders are still unsolved to this day John Van Syce again was working as a farmhand he was tied to these people in some ways with drugs I really don't know what the firm information is on that but he was definitely investigated about this murder then in 1995 there's Bill Pruin who is dead and Jody Husentrout who is disappeared has disappeared and those are two other people which he is involved in their lives. So then in 2002, there's the shoplifter Larry Melsky, who died in Arizona after being in this Van Sice's custody for f- stealing a fucking magazine or something. Jesus. Yeah. How many of us can say that we have first person connection with one mysterious unsolved murder, let alone goddamn five of them? Nope, not me. That's crazy. That is absolutely crazy. There are coincidences and then there are obvious correlations that I feel John Van Syce, there's something about this man. You don't have all these connections to these mysterious no deaths that are unsolved to this day. I'm worked up about it. <laughs> In June of 2008, a reporter at the Mason City Globe Gazette, Bob Link, received an anonymous package in the mail, and it turned out to be Jody's journal, which had never been made public. After a quick internal police probe, it was discovered that the wife of former police chief David Ellington had sent it. Ellington had resigned from his position in 2006 after what was described as political posturing and pressure to do so. The police say he inadvertently took the journal when he vacated his office and his wife found it when they were moving a couple years later and she thought that she should send it to the newspaper. I find that to be very weird and interesting. Um, It made me at first when I first read that I was like, that's very suspicious. You know, there's got to be something in there that helps yeah, in some way. That she must feel helps. Though, it's also possible that she was trying to get back at the police department in some way and make them look bad for the whole situation that happened with her husband. Mm. But oh. Mm-hmm. It's possible. But the full journal was never made public, so only certain pages were. And so it's hard to say what was in there, if there was anything at all. Right. So in the pages that were made public, Jody talks a lot about work and motivating herself to stay focused, committing, reaching her goals, et cetera, et cetera, like we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. speaking things into existence. In her last few entries, she writes of her birthday party. She writes, what a weekend surprise. My Mason City Clear Lake friends threw a big party for me at a lounge, Wilds. They had a 16-gallon keg, a huge cake, so much left. John Van Syce grilled 150 pork burgers. We were dancing on tables, dancing everywhere. Everyone had a ball. Video cameras were rolling. Cameras were clicking. Oh, what fun. Life is so good. The party made me feel so good. Well, I mean, it sure seems like she did appreciate that party. I will also say, though, she wasn't like, John John threw me a party, the sweet thing. Yes. She says John Van Syce grilled 150 burgers. Pork burgers. So, hmm. 
That's interesting to note. <laughs> I don't think she was like, John, you no, know? No, no, doesn't no, seem not like at it. All. In her last entry, she talks about her weekend getaway with John and his son, Trent. That's what it was. Yeah. Then ends with this. Great friends, but professionally, I'm fed up. It's difficult finding a new job, and I'm confused about an agent and what to do. Mm-hmm. So, interesting, because I didn't really get that from anyone that ever – they were asked questions about her with the, from the police that she was looking for a new job, but she was. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that really makes any difference because she was always, of course, going to – her goal was to get to a bigger market. Absolutely. So, as far as, like, what I'm thinking about this whole situation, Van Syce seems like the clear, obvious mm-hmm. person who was not only obsessed with her, but didn't want to lose her in any way and kind of seemed like he was frantically gripping onto her for everything, for throwing sure. her parties and naming his boat after her, you know, trying to get him her to come out with him for weekends and with his son. And it also just seems like he would want to be the last person to see Jody, Like, if he killed her, he would want to go around letting everyone know that he saw her right before she disappeared because he was obsessed with her. Right. And he wants everyone to know or think that they're tight as fuck. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so he's definitely suspicious as hell. And considering that he has ties to five other people who have been mysteriously murked or disappeared, what the hell? He, I don't know how in the world they haven't been able to nail this guy but at this point he may not even have the faculties to no he doesn't no way which is unfortunate so here's the final weird thing i was able to find um in an article published january 2nd of this year 2020 there are details regarding vandalism on jody's billboard in mason city iowa which implores the public for information about the disappearance with the words somebody knows something is it you and it was vandalized with the words frank stern's and machine shed. What? Video footage from a nearby tavern shows two people in dark clothing committing vandalism. And Steve Ridge, BDMF, <laughs> stated that they, quote, brought it around and very methodically moved the ladder along to write the letters Frank Stearns, who was the former lieutenant of the Mason City Police Department. Then they replaced the ladder and in one swoop wrote machine shed implying that perhaps this is where to look for Jody's body. Hmm. Stern's only statement was that he wants the people responsible for the vandalism prosecuted. So what does that mean exactly? In 2005, at the time, he was a Mason City police sergeant, and Frank Stearns told the Des Moines Register, there's nothing I'd rather do in my life right now than bring closure to the family. You can't just let it go. It becomes a part of you. Hmm. So... Well, that's an interesting Why? twist. I mean, though, maybe it's just somebody trying to put out a red herring. That's a definitely that's definitely a possibility. You never know. Absolutely. But maybe there's maybe there's some suspicious situation with police too, because yep. I that's my that was my first inclination when I heard that the former police chief's wife sent the journal mm. in. I was like, what is she trying to tell them yep. with the police? Yep. Because uh, she didn't send it to the police. She sent it, which they the had newspaper. already had it. But you know, right? Cold cases like this can always be broken by people involved talking. So. It always seems like the case where they just can't help themselves and they want to brag about what they've done and what they've gotten away with. And eventually they want to tell somebody. They just need to tell one person that goes to authorities with what they've been told for the case to get broken wide open. 
Up and Vanish did this with the Tara Grinstead case after 12 years of being cold because the two lowlifes who killed her couldn't help but brag to people when they got drunk. So it's one of my things I always say whenever we cover cold cases is if you know anything, if you've ever been told anything, if anyone has ever said that they know any little bit of information about what happened to Jody who's in truth, please come forward to somebody the police, anybody who you can get the ball rolling and get her case. Just come forward and speak. And I just hope that with time, maybe somebody will talk and someone that knows something will let it slip out. Hopefully that happens. So if you do have any additional information regarding Jody, who's in truth's case, you can either email contact team at findjody.com. Or you can call 970-458-J-O-D-I. Our sources from this episode come from the book Dead Air, The Disappearance of Jody Hoosentrout by Beth Bednar, findjody.com, and The Pioneer Press. Thank you guys so much for listening. We love you. And we'll see you next time with another case of something. All right. Have a great day.